This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. So this, this afternoon, I was uh, my wife and two children came to Boston Common uh, for the afternoon. And so I went out there and I met him for lunch. And uh, there was this guy really uh, pushing, making balloons for the kids. And he would like come up to the kids who were standing next to their parents and be like, hey, do you want me to make you a sword? And I was very quick to interject no, because I have no idea how much money this guy's going to charge for the sword, you know? And I just didn't want to deal with that. So we sat down on the grass a little ways away, and uh, this other family was hanging out, and the parents kind of had their back turned to the kids, and the kids kind of wandered over to the balloons. And the kid guy was like, hey, uh, do, do you want me to make you a sword? <laughs> and the kid was like, yes, I want a sword. So the father turns around when this guy is like three quarters of the way done making the sword or whatever. So he finishes the sword and hands it over to the guy. And then he looks at the father like, okay, now you have to pay up. And the guy goes, your agreement with, was, was with my son. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well. You'll be hearing from my lawyers. Yeah. I don't think he's old enough to enter into a <laughs> binding contractual agreement with you for payment. <laughs> That's I think really he ended up, I think he ended up giving him a dollar anyway, but I just laughed my ass off at that. Yeah, that's really funny. That, <laughs> yeah. Your agreement was with my son. <laughs> uh... Hi Sean. Hi Derek. Hi. Hi. Uh, how's your, uh, your week going? So yeah, you, your, your last day at ThoughtBot was last Friday, which we discussed yep. in the last show. Uh, this will come out a week delayed. So now a couple of Fridays ago from when you're hearing this in that time, you have tackled many a thing. I well, don't know. What have it, you been doing? Are you enjoying your time? Are you taking time off? What's going on? Fill us in. I'm kind of sort of taking time off. Uh, I'm teaching at Turing school, which is, uh, not technically time off, but I also have bills and want to buy a house soon. So it's kind of part-time and kind of lower pressure, so I'm spending time doing that, helping them, and then working on this new that new uh, Rust ORM that we've been talking about a little bit. Making good headway on that. Cool. Playing some video games. What are you playing? What do you have? What do you play? Well, Hearthstone, a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, and then we just had a new expansion for that, and a bunch of indie games that I can't remember the name of. So you play I've... PC games, or? Yeah. Yeah, entirely PC. Cool. I upgraded to Windows 10. It's pretty nice. Yeah. My dad's computer had Windows 10 on it when I went up and visited him in Maine. Seemed fine, I guess. Start menu's back. It's Windows. It looks like, like Win- it looks more like Windows. Yeah, the start menu's nice. I don't know. It's all right. There's a blog we should link to. There's a developer who is from the um, Shop Talk Show podcast, and he is switching to... I think I shared this link with you because you, yeah. you were like, everybody's talking about it. We'll link it up in the show notes, but he's switching to Windows basically because he uh, knew some friends or knew some people at Microsoft in like developer outreach and was like, how do, how do we get some more of your type of developers onto this platform? So he was trying it out and then it turned out that Rails was like <laughs> the biggest nightmare for him to get running. So that's actually a decent segue into a topic we can talk about. I know. I didn't I, even mean I don't it. Think we, I, don't, I, don't, cause I don't think we discussed that at all. Nope. <laughs> uh, they are aware of that fact and are actively trying to improve it. And they, uh, Who is they? Big, they being Microsoft. Right. That uh, the story for, for Rails on Windows isn't great. 
Uh, and so they're doing lots of awesome things to improve that. I'm going to be most involved in the SQL Server and Azure SQL database stories. Trying to get you, that. You are going to be involved. Is that what you said? Yes. Okay. I don't know how. I don't know how much. I know that they have prefixed everything with we're doing the legwork, but we're looking for some guidance from the correct people in the various parts of the community. This is also for Django as well. Um, and so they're having a big open source summit in Redmond in October, and they're flying a bunch of us out. Um, so I'm going out for that. Ken Collins, who maintains the uh, SQL Server adapter, uh, is going to fly out for that. They're providing us with some CI servers for, for Windows, which will help a lot. And we haven't discussed too much a lot of the other things that need to improve on Windows because uh, it's mostly the Azure team that's been reaching out. But the f- fact that Microsoft, the entity, gives any number of shits about open source, especially open source that they don't control, is astonishing to me and really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's times are changing. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. <laughs> I hope this that's what it means. This isn't the old embrace and extinguish approach like it was taken with like Java and J Sharp. So, or whatever there. I think J Sharp came later, but whatever. Something like that. This seems honest, uh, like an interest in like, because like I know personally for me, I was I always liked having Macs, but at work I always had to use a PC for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got into Rails development and I was still able to use a PC at the time. Like it wasn't terrible. Uh, it was pretty bad, actually. I, pre- I pretty quickly, I, I did it all through RubyMine, which kind of helped a little bit, maybe. And then eventually just was enough was enough and switched over to a Mac and never looked back. So I don't even, I have no idea what it's like to try and run Ruby and Rails. I know there's like the Rails installer for Windows, um, right. but I have I have no idea. Like PowerShell was barely a thing the last time I was using Windows. So now like there's a nice shell environment supposedly on Windows. That's what I'm told. Right. Um, um, there's also uh, what's the what's the the Unix on Windows one? I don't remember. Sigwin. Yeah, Sigwin. Sigwin's a nightmare. Don't, don't get me started on Sigwin. All right. <laughs> I had to use Sigwin for uh, that was another. I can't remember what was I using it for trying to do Rails stuff. That was around the same time that I was just like, all right, I'm if I'm gonna bother with Sigwin, I should just run something that has a Unixy shell. You know, people always talk about Windows as like this thing that's like, yeah, we could probably support Windows better, and but nobody's using it. Except there's this aspect of it that, that we always forget to think about, which is that Macs are really expensive. And if you are a person who's not already a developer, uh, who's looking at maybe trying to learn Rails, which is what programs like Rails Bridge um, you know, bring a lot of people into, you're more likely to own a Windows machine than a Mac. Right. And I think, you know, you mentioned RailsBridge. I think, I don't know if this is like program wide. I've never volunteered there, but I know I was talking to Gabe, who, uh, one of our coworkers who volunteers there. And he mentioned that I, I think what they did was they have a virtual box image. So when people show up with Windows machines, they're just like, here, install this virtual box image for, uh, to get you running with, uh, you know, the stuff. That's not what, that's not what they do in Denver. Here we just have a person who's the Windows expert. Right, raise your hand if you're using Windows and run around trying to. And fix half all these the problems. room raises their hand, and this one person's the only one who can help them most of the time. <laughs> like, uh, what are what are the problems? What are the cla- um, what are the classes of problems? File paths and drive letters and things like that. I imagine that that's a big one. I mean, anything that overly relies on Unix, which yeah, usually comes down to file paths, but can also come into forking behavior or what syscalls you're using. Oh right, um, I mean, does Windows Windows fork? Windows doesn't fork. Windows, no, you can fork on Windows. It just works a little bit differently. Okay. Most, I don't remember the exact differences, and you're not likely to run into them. But my point being, if you're overly relying on it happening exactly in the Unix way, 
which again, I don't remember exactly what the difference between the Unix way and not the Unix way on that one is. But yeah, uh, actually file paths and drive letters was ones that the specific cases that came up recently for sprockets in particular, where just it doesn't work on Windows at all right now due to something where it's assuming the, the file paths being uh, like slash being the root path. And that was where the discussion of just we should probably have CI for Windows started coming out of because we don't have CI for Windows. Um, like sprockets did work. The released version does work on Windows and master doesn't or I don't know if it still doesn't if we fix it or not. But like we should have known that that, that, that happened. Right. When it comes to SQL Server, uh, a couple of the missing things that have come up so far are uh, lack of support for many, many types that are not ANSI standard, but SQL Server supports, which, hey, we've got new stuff to help with that, which will be good. Uh, And then um, also, I guess, uh, and I don't know all the details because I've only had a handful of of brief calls at this point, but um, I guess the way we handle authentication for the database doesn't like there are there is a ton of really common cases with SQL Server that just are not possible with the way Rails has it set up. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah. And beyond that, I don't know other specifics other than the vague feeling like like you were just saying that it seems like a lot of like everybody on Windows has issues with Rails and I'm not entirely sure what the exact reasons are, but we should even if there's nothing that's straight out like straight up broken, it still we should strive to make it especially given that the most likely person to be developing rail a rails app on windows is a brand new developer we need to make sure that that isn't frustrating and i feel like that's part of the problem right if you have a brand new developer who's running into these problems they have a limited ability to describe to you the problem Right. right and have limited hypotheses on what the problem could actually be and the people who are more experienced are like screw this i'm not using windows i'm gonna go buy you know, or I'm, I'm going to install Linux, or I'm going to go buy. An, a again, Mac that's one. still assuming they can afford it, right? But so what or I'm getting at, how to install Linux. what I'm getting at is like, if I were Microsoft and I really wanted to attack this problem, I would do exactly what they're doing. It sounds like, which is like yeah. contact people who are in the community in the position to solve these problems, give them hardware, be like, here is your Windows laptop. You're not. I'm not going to make you run this in a VM. I'm not going to make like, here's a you know a nice thousand dollar Windows laptop. Yeah, go at it. And, you know, run all your tests on this. And then also, like you said, like we're going to give you uh, hosted CI environments that can run Windows and we're going to pay for it because, you know, you don't have any money to pay for these things. It's an open source project. Well, um, and here's the other thing that they're doing, though, at least on the SQL Server side of things. They're saying we're not necessarily asking you to devote a ton of your time to this. We're happy with having our engineers do do all of the legwork on it as long as you can help give us some guidance. Perfect. <laughs> but so, I mean, even being being able to give that guidance is going to require like... It's going to require time. Some, yeah. And some familiarity with the platform. <laughs> like, yes. Oh, definitely. Like, I am so, like, it, it's to the point now where, like, family members ask me questions about Windows. I'm like, I, I, I don't, I don't know, control panel, something, something. Uh, I don't know. My computer. Uh, <laughs> that's all I got. Uh, I, you know, I used to be the person that was, you know, the go-to helper for Windows things, but uh, not anymore. Um, and I also feel like, I, I feel like that's also part of their problem on the web, you know, Maybe not with regards to most web development who, you know, that's still probably PHP, Java, which works fine on Windows as far as I know. Yep. But like uh, designers and and people like that are often using Macs, right? So like front end, I, and if they're not using Macs, they're not using IE for the most part, from what I can tell. You know, people are using Chrome and well, it's, maybe uh, Firefox. It's, it's, it's Microsoft Edge now. Right. Yeah. Um, and how many people have you ever tried anything on Microsoft Edge? Mm, yeah, you have. Actually, 
Yeah, actually, oh, because you just I, installed it, Windows 10. That's right. It's actually it's actually a nice browser. I'm yeah, thinking about switching fast. to it. From, I'm, I'm thinking about it is, and that's why I'm thinking about switching to it from Chrome. Right, but I feel like that like when a few years ago they were finally like, okay, we're gonna make these VMs available so you can download VMs for IE6, IE7, IE8, IE9. Right, and it was such a hassle, and uh, they expire after 30 days, and they have the like activation thing, so that's why they expire, and you have to reinstall them. It's such a ha- like they made it like congratulations, but I don't know. It was better the last time I did it because they've got this fancy modern looking website where and it it definitely wasn't a VM that expired. It just couldn't really do anything other than like run IE, and then IE eleven uh, and ten can both emulate all versions of IE going back to I think four. Yeah, that gets you that gets you pretty far. But there yeah. are times when you just like, I need to run this actual browser. Like if you go into developer tools in IE 9, I think it started in 9, you're able to like, oh God, it's been so long. You're able to like set the target IE version and have it render as if it's IE right. 8, like bug for bug compatibility, supposedly. I, I, bug for I bug mean, compatibility. That, that's the thing though, is that A, if I'm supporting 8 or 9 at all at this point, which is unlikely... I'm probably going to just trust that the emulation does actually work. Yeah. Rather than actually go through the trouble to figure I don't I wouldn't even know how to get actual IE8. Right. At this at, at this point. There used to be a project IEVMs that like tried to dance around some of those um I wonder if that's still a thing. X Descent IEVMs is the GitHub project. So yeah, it looks like it's still a thing. Um where it tries to automate like downloading those approved IEVMs and refreshing them every however long you need to refresh them stuff like that um so you should we'll put a link to that in the show notes had other ie things as i say oh the ie support like the browser support thing like i wonder if that's also a position of privilege that we're in like with the t- types of clients that we're able to say like like i think we recently just said we don't even support ie9 anymore by default unless you can make a business case for what we have to on a particular right, that, project that's because the general consumer even those on windows have upgraded beyond ie9 I guess it was just getting past the requirement for XP, right? Right. Um, and once you could safely say we no longer care about Windows XP, but if like you're developing anything for China, right? Then right. Well, and then um, yeah, because XP was the cutoff for six. Uh, Vista is the cutoff for nine. Right. XP. So if, if you're on XP, you cannot get to IE nine. You can only get to IE eight. Get to IE eight. Yeah. Um, and then if you are on Vista, you can only get to nine. If you're on Windows 7, you can get 10, and I think you can also get 11, but once you get to 10, it's fine. I guess Flexbox doesn't work in IE 10 properly, but Flexbox doesn't really work in anything properly, so. <laughs> hey, we used it one time. It worked okay. It was kind of, we had to add some wrapping stuff to make it work the way you wanted to work. I don't know. It was all right. So what is the, what's the feeling been like with the people that you've talked to about, like, Microsoft getting involved here? Like, there's always... I feel like there's always a reaction of people being like, "Oh, corporate people getting involved with open source. They're gonna they're gonna like pay Sean Griffin all this money, and he's gonna instead of spending his time on uh, the attributes API version two or whatever the heck you want to spend your time on next, you're gonna like start working on SQL Server integration." But you know that's the funny thing. So a, I would actually be really I would be really pleased if the way it goes down is I'm ju- I build them as a contractor and spend some time solving their problems. But the thing is improving the story for third party because we're not going to add a SQL server adapter to Rails Rails. That is definitely never going to happen. We cannot have an adapter that the majority of our contributors can't run the tests for in tree. 
but I've been wanting to improve the story for third party adapters for a while now and get and come up figure out what the public like the public stable API for that is so that an adapter doesn't have to be in tree to feel like it has first class support and I mean JDB still JDBC still doesn't support 4.2 uh, 100%. Right. That is a huge problem for me because I'm a you know JRuby as well. I'm a huge fan of and the JRuby st- story for Rails is really abysmal as well. So yeah, I mean, in the in the and it sounds like in Microsoft you have somebody who's willing to help you from that side of like we know connectivity to our database, right? <laughs> we can help you here. Um, and if somebody and wants to throw support at the problem; it's right, not going to hurt, right? And they're reaching out to Ken to say who's you know the maintainer. Ken Collins, the maintainer of the SQL Server uh, adapter, and then they're reaching out to you and other people in, involved with Rails. So they're trying to get everybody's attention focused on an area and like. I think there's enough that everybody in that equation can gain. Like Microsoft gains because they get better connectivity for SQL Server. So people in the enterprise that are running SQL Server don't have to be like, well, we're going to switch to the Postgres because our developers want to run Rails or something like that. Right. And then, you know, Ken gains because he feels like, you know, the adapter that he maintains and likely uses, I suppose, you know, gets better support as feels more of a first class citizen. And we all gain because. You know, you're not just going to make this special case stuff for your SQL Server. It's going to be something that's more broadly useful to like make make third party adapters more first class citizens. Yeah, well, and I think the entire Rails community will also gain because once I have a stable public API for uh, third party adapters, uh, and I, like something that is clearly broad enough that it hand covers all of the cases that it needs to for the four entry adapters. I guess probably my, my, my litmus test is if it supports the four entry adapters, if it supports JDBC, and if it supports SQL Server, and if it can handle all of those needs, I'm, I'm comfortable with that's a broad enough API that like any third-party adapter is going to be fine. And at that point, we can move MySQL 1 adapter into a gem. Not, not deprecated, because there's still legitimate use cases that the MySQL 2 gem cannot handle. I know GitHub is on the MySQL 1 gem. I don't know who else is, but like major users who... Anyway, it won't be a deprecated thing, but we can kind of move it out of tree and it won't be a place that we have to ever really focus time on because it's going to do what it does. And unless I make breaking changes to a public API, which is something I do very sparingly and with deprecation cycles, we can be confident that like the legacy code there will continue to work. Right. The four entry adapters are SQLite, MySQL 1, MySQL 2, and Postgres. Is that it? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. And then eventually like, then you could get to the point where, what's the um, PostGIS? So like PostGIS has to be implemented as its own adapter, right? And PostGIS adds on um, support for like the geo tagging, geo location stuff in Postgres. It doesn't right? in Rails four point two. It doesn't in Rails five either. Although in both of those cases, it is still going to have to hook into some um, internal implementation details. But it's definitely possible to add support for PostGIS without being implemented as an adapter now right but it is currently right it is currently and it's going to continue to be until they're willing to drop support for all versions prior to 4.2 right and the problem with that is like maybe it works just fine but then when changes are made to the underlying adapters that might screw things up or if if you want to layer on something else you can't do that or if i want to have a sec a second uh non-standard plugin right right that's what i meant you wanted to if you wanted to layer on like I don't know what that would be, but there's probably something else from Postgres that you could layer on there. And, uh, 
then you're gonna have them battling and that's that's like I, I feel like this is one of the very long-standing the two places where i feel like there's a very long-standing acceptance of like oh you just do this with this private rails api and uh, there's very successful and prominent gems are in adapters and also in schema stuff schema yeah. dumpers and things like that like that's there's no public api for that but they're everywhere but that's the thing is that they've been coincidentally successful. Like that's why there's, you know, a, a, a decent sized group of folks in that kind of world who are very angry at me because since I've come on board, those internal APIs are the things I've been fiddling with and moving around. Right. And but I understand that from both perspectives, right? Like you have to be able to move the internals forward so that maybe someday you can get to a point where you provide a nice clean public API. But in the meantime, all these people were just trying to get their work done, right? Yes. And they're like, well, it won't let me use this type of column, and I want to do it. So I'm going to introduce a thing that allows you to, you know, use this type of value in the database or whatever, or create views. Somebody maintains one of those. I don't know. Um, and, uh, you know, so they just wanted to get that done, and they looked at the available code out there, and were like, okay, this is how you do it. Like, yeah, this feels weird, but... It's not even necessarily like I feel like you could be doing Rails for a long time and not realize that what you're doing is not public API. Yeah, I like, think I mean I've got a blog post that gets cited all the time and used to be part of the Turing curriculum until I made them take it out, which was about using ARL to make yeah. SQL queries. Right, ARL's private API. <laughs> but you have to do it sometimes. Like if you wanted to write an OR statement with whatever, or you or want... you just write some SQL. Right. Yeah. But no, you know, it's, and it's funny that you like they just wanted to get their work done, and I agree. And it's funny I, when I think back to because I did little commits here and there before I really started. Like the attributes API became the thing I focused on, and even the attributes API though. All of this before you and I were together on T1D, I was on a very brief project, and for weird reasons, there there was a requirement that the data had to be encrypted at rest, like not just the database itself was encrypted, but if access to the database was compromised the data needed to be unreadable mm -hmm. which was problematic because we needed to implement like an advanced search panel and do queries more complicated than equality or inequality which if you're querying against encrypted data that's the like you, that's the only op, uh, thing you can do assuming because then i mean those are easy right then you just encrypt it client side then where encrypted data equals this encrypted string. But if you need to do a like uh, statement or less than, uh, something like that, uh, you need to decrypt it in your query. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do this in such a way that it didn't require all consuming code to know or care. I want to just write kind of normal, well, normal assuming that you're going to use ARL. Normal, normal like if you're using um, Ransack, I guess, kind of code. And that was just flat out impossible on Rails. 4. This was Rails 4.0, 3.2, uh, either 3.2 or 4.0. And now, and two and a half years later, <laughs> there's finally a public API. Because that was the thing. It wasn't like I actually did kind of do this hacky thing, and then it turned out the gem couldn't friggin' update to 4.1 or get security patches because it relied on internal everything everywhere. But that, but then, I guess I took the 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 correct approach and contribute to, to rails to get the public api there to make it possible without relying on internals but that took a very long time right and so now the, <laughs> now the nicety of that is like we've talked about the attributes api a lot but you like the attributes api also help also helps you in where so you could declare like this is an encrypted attribute 
And when you are um, typecasting for the database, this is what you do. Yeah, and then it encrypts it, or it modifies the query to do PG crypto stuff. And then when it's going to the database and where, it can uh, create the SQL that decrypts it. Right. Cool. You would actually still, I guess, have to rely on one internal method to make that happen. I need to make. I I, I do need to come up with a story for that, like where um, you need control over quoting behavior, and uh, also over whether or not a type is used in a prepared statement. Because in this case, well, you could you could you could still use it in a prepared statement. I I need to think about that <laughs> some more actually, because that is a little bit of a hole. Hasn't come up yet. <laughs> Two and a half years ago. <laughs> All right, so let's take a quick break and tell you about our sponsor for today's episode. It's Media Temple. So Media Temple's been around for a really long time. I think I remember first hearing about them in the early 2000s, and I definitely checked them out then. I I wasn't in a position where I needed a lot of their services, but they're still around, and they're still a premium platform for designers, developers, and creative professionals. So when you sign up for Media Temple, what you what you get is a, a server on their grid, basically. And a grid is a bunch of bunch of servers together that can handle a large load. So using your grid account, you can host whatever it is you want. You can host a portfolio site. You can host all of your client projects, like hundreds of them, whatever it is you have. So with your one, say you're a, you're, you're a freelancer and you have you know, 10, 20, 30 clients, you can get one grid server and serve their sites off of that potentially. Um, and that hosting is going to stand up to a, to a big load. Like if you get on the front page of Hacker News or Reddit, it's not going to be a problem. If somebody else on your cluster of servers gets onto the front page of Reddit or Hacker News, it's not going to be a problem. They handle noisy neighbors and traffic spikes like that without a problem. So if all you want to do is get up running quickly with WordPress or anything like that, they have the, t- the typical one-click installs that you see places. They have a really great control panel that's nice to look at, easy to use. And on top of it all, they have fantastic support. So I have friends that have Media Temple accounts, and they have called at like 10 p.m. on a Saturday and had somebody cheery on the other end who's happy to help you. So I'd encourage you to check out Media Temple, and as a special discount for Bike Shed listeners, you can use the promo code BIKE25 for 25% off your web hosting. Go to mediatemple.net and enter your promo code upon sign-up. Thanks again to Media Temple for sponsoring the show. Thanks, Media Temple. <laughs> so you want to talk about this Rust ORM that I've been working on? Sure. This is becoming the Rust show. I, I'm okay with it. I wish I knew more Rust, but uh, you know, you, it's the, the Rusty. This bike is show. my attempt to force you to learn more Rust. <laughs> this is a, this is actually how we uh, how we convert new developers. <laughs> we just keep talking about it on the podcast. Just yeah, do a podcast with them. Keep talking about Rust, and then they have to learn Rust so that they can talk about it. This is a long con. <laughs> yes. No, it's it's been cool. It's um, I've gotten through the majority of that of that document I sent you however long ago it was that we were talking about that. Um, last and I've week. Managed, was it last week? Yep. You got through the majority of that? Yeah. We recorded uh, this a week ago. Less than a week ago. We recorded last Thursday, I think, or something like that. Last Wednesday. Yeah. Well, I got through the majority of that. Like, everything that doesn't require a compiler plugin, and it's actually looking way better than I thought it was going to without compiler plugins. Uh, the problem with compiler plugins being that they require nightly rust. Right. Because uh, they're not stable. And not documented because it's basically they expose the entire internals of the compiler. <laughs> and just uh, to clarify for anybody who's not familiar with Rust, Rust has macros which uh, allow you to do nice things to avoid having to write uh, lots of boilerplate code, but they are very limited in what they can do. They it's, are so um, they're they're akin to the meta programming that gets done with like uh, association code in Rails, right? That's not a macro, but a lot of Rails developers think of that as a macro. Right. It's executing at runtime, not at compile time. That's the difference. 
Right. Correct. And this executes at compile time, but it's it's more template expansion than, uh, than right. anything else. But you can't do things like have conditionals, for example. At least not conditional. Like you couldn't have it generate different code depending on like what was passed to it. It's it's really just template expansion. And then compiler plugins also look like macros to the consumer. Um, however, you do still have you do have to explicitly say I want to enable this plugin. And then instead of it uh, just expanding a template, what it's going to do is call a function, which takes in a, an abstract syntax tree and can do whatever it wants. It's just a, it's an arbitrary Rust function, and it returns an abstract syntax tree. Okay. And so the the I've got I've I've come up with now a concrete to do list, and I've basically separated everything into like for every little piece of SQL, I want to see the type the type safe API. That works on stable, the unsafe API that will allow for arbitrary SQL and works on stable, and the uh, type safe API which works with arbitrary SQL um, but would require a compiler plugin or some form of code gen. That's the alternative. Is I could probably get it on stable Rust by um, having some functions that you can call from your build script that just generate the code instead before it compiles the rest of your application, uh, and that would work on stable. So I've got select pretty much done minus code gen stuff uh and i'm making headway through various types of joins and i end up with this really neat little api that came out of it and there so there's a little bit of boilerplate that will ultimately be fixed by schema dumper but where you just say hey there's a table with this shape and then you also say hey i have this struct and i want to be able to query it from a table with this shape and I don't ever explicitly associate I query a user struct from the user's table um i, I keep it a little more generic than that and then each of the columns gets represented now as what's called a unit struct. So it's a struct that has zero fields. And then I have a trait uh, called column, which is generic over a table. And so then I implement column generic over the user's table for each column in the user's table. Um, and then in my select function, I'm able to say uh, I take any column C where C implements column for me. Okay. I'm still. What was the point of the struct that has no fields? So basically, this is a way of pushing all of this. Like, so it's a thing you can assign it to a variable. You can refer to it by name, and you can pass it around like an argument. But you can also refer to it as a type. And any code that you actually write that actually does anything with it will be erased because there is absolutely nothing you can do with it because it has zero fields, and so it has a size of zero, which means it takes up zero memory. Okay. So you can't actually do anything useful with it. Um, so, but, but what this ends up meaning is, so like one alternative that there's a lot of reasons that this wouldn't quite work for the, the way I've been, uh, I've been taking this, but I could have used an enum where like there was the column enum for the user's table, right? And then each of the members of that enum was one of the columns. But even if every member of that enum had zero fields, the size of that enum itself would still be one because at runtime now you can actually store which of these you have because uh, the type isn't now user's ID. The type is user's column uh, and we need to be able to differentiate between that. And then the code that you use to, to do stuff generic over it would be pattern matching. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then the compiled code is going to end up being it stores uh, basically a one byte field to tell you which column it is and then um, you know, a giant if statement. Whereas with the way I've got it, the code that will actually get generated, the machine code, will look like if you just wrote by hand really, really, really specifically tightly coupled code to the exact query that you were doing. Right. 
It's going to be a little bigger binary overall, but it's going to be you know more efficient. And also, let's uh, I'm able to do much more interesting things at the type level with them. Mm-hmm. Like for example, because it's a it's not an enum, it's just a it's just a trait that I implement generic over the table. Uh, the way I select multiple columns is you pass me a tuple of two or more columns, and I've got some uh, code that says for any tuple of two columns, where uh, column A is of type A and belongs to table A, and column B is of type B uh, and belongs to table B, that tuple can be considered a column of type tuple of the type of A and the type of B that belongs to a table that is the tuple of the table of A and the table of B. And that last bit's actually really, uh, this really interesting journey I had this morning because as as of last night, the table of the resulting column wasn't actually a tuple of the two tables. It was just, uh, I would assume that the two columns belong to the same table because when I had originally written this trait, it was assuming that, or this tuple logic, it was assuming that you were, this was because you're selecting ID and name from your user's table. But then uh, what came out of it was, so then I started working on joins and um, I had to abstract, I had to make the select function a little bit more generic because a column is generic over the table belongs to and a column definitely only ever belongs to a table. Actually, I had to remove that as well. But um, <laughs> a column belongs to a thing of type uh, called type T, and in places where it needs to be a table, I constrain it to be a table. But I, I then had to um, make that a little bit more generic and not reason about columns, but reason about selectable columns, uh, which is generic over the table that it comes from and the query source that you can select it from. So that way you can select it from the, the join query source. And then uh, I need to, and, then, and so that way I can say, so a, any, col- uh, any column that belongs to table T, is a selectable column of T and T, uh, originating from table T, and it is selectable from table T. And then for the inner join query source, what I wanted to write, which I couldn't write, and I've got, there are several ways that this will be fixed in the future. Uh, I wanted to be able to say, so for, an inner, for a joined query source where there is the left side and the right side, any column belonging to the left side is a selectable column originating from the left side and selectable from the join between the left and right. And then any column um, that belongs to the right side is a selectable column originating from the right side that is selectable from the inner join between the left and right side. Uh, the problem with that is because I'm representing this as a trait, and traits usually have methods on them. This is specifically what's called a marker trait. It's a trait with no behavior. Um, but when traits do have behavior, there needs to be no ambiguity about what behavior to use. You know, like there's a trait called add, mm-hmm. uh, which defines what the plus operator does for a given type. And it's generic over the right-hand side in the output. But, like, you couldn't have two implementations that overlap because then in the case of overlap, like, what logic do you actually run? This is similar to including a module within Ruby where you have the same Yeah, they both method. had a method of the same name. Right, um, and in Ruby, the last one wins. So that's, right. that's, that's what they do. But then here, uh, this isn't so much about namespace collisions. This is more about uh, types mm-hmm. um, and more just multiple things saying it. Uh, I mean, you you would have this. You could have the same problem in Haskell mm-hmm. when you're implementing a type class. And the reason that definition I just said for the join, inner join source is illegal is because there that is an overlapping implement, implementation because there's no evidence that left and right aren't the same thing. And in the case that they are the same thing, that is ambiguous. Um, now, there's a thing that's going to be coming soon called specialization, which allows you to have overlapping implementations for traits as long as one implementation is clearly more specific than the other. 
So it, as long as it entirely contains the other set. And so if, if you're more specific, then you can uh, create a new one. Um, and then it also allows so give you an, to Give have, an example of more specific. Like what do you mean by that? So if I've got some like parsing trait and I write an implementation for a vector of type T and then I write an implementation for a vector of an unsigned byte. Okay. That is a clearly more specific uh, implementation. It can get broader than that, and it can simply be like additional constraints or state like two different uh, using saying something that is generic over T and U versus something that's generic over T and T. The latter is more specific because it, it's specifically in the case with the same type. So if something matched both of those, it would just choose to run the most the more specific. Right, and the restriction there basically comes down to if you think of the set of everything that the first one could uh, could cover, and the set of the second of, the, of everything the second one could cover. The first one needs to entirely contain the second one. Right. I'm glad I don't write compilers. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also allows, though, for you to have just generically overlapping, where like one's not more specific than the other. And in this case, uh, what we do is you just say what to, you explicitly say. Here's what to do in the case of overlap. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then that, and then that resolves it. Um, but anyway, so my uh, thing when I ran into this was like. Okay, but none of this matters because there's no methods on this. We should just remove the restriction on overlapping impl uh, implementations for any trait that has no methods because there's right. absolutely no, no reason not to. Right. Yeah, at that point, you're just using it to help with type matching, right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I'm just using, yeah, I'm doing it to basically do algebra in the type system. <laughs> anyway, so, and then all worked. And I have a workaround where I'm now, when, when you say that you, how you can join between two columns and you're doing, and I have people doing, I have you doing that in a macro right now. I also then generate a much, a more specific, uh, implementation that says any column, uh, that belongs to the users table can be selected from a join between the users and the posts table. And I'm so becoming super specific there. But then I got into this interesting case where, uh, when I, and, and, at, and at this point, a column was constrained to be generic over a table. And so a selectable column had to originate from a table. And then uh, that broke for me when I uh, wrote the test case that said, and I can select two columns from different tables from a join that aren't select users.star, post.star. So I, my test was users.name and post.title. Because mm -hmm. I could write a generic implementation, like given a tuple of a, a column A that has a type of A, uh, that has a type of a, source A and a table of table A. And a column, you know, and all of that with B instead and all of these constraints that says like they can be joined between each other and, and all the other stuff. Um, and then it would have looked like a selectable column of type tuple of, of type of A and tuple and type of B. And then the second parameter there is supposed to be the table that it originates from. And then the third parameter is the source can be queried from. And in this case, the source is the, the inner joiner. I just have it generically any query source. But that's like, but what do you put for the table? Because... A tuple of table A and table B is not a table, and I really and I, I not only do I not want to make it a table, I can't make it a table because uh, there's one method you have to implement on table, which is name, and like what's the name of that table, right. uh, and that's going to get used to construct queries. So I can't just put like a comma b. That will be a syntax error, and I I can't just say it's from table A because that's clearly incorrect. And in fact, Rust rightfully so does not compile if I try to do that because it'll complain that like you're generic over this thing called table of B, but you're not actually using it in the uh, the types that you're uh, reasoning about. So you can't do that. Mm -hmm. And then it occurred to me, my problem was that when I previously needed select multiple columns, I considered a tuple of two columns from the same table to originate from that table. 
but they don't. They actually originate from a tuple, like a, user, a tuple of users' ID and users' posts. doesn't originate from users. It originates from a tuple of users and users. Okay. <laughs> right. Right, but that, that is technically more correct. It is multiple columns, and they might have multiple sources, and, and all of this still works out. And as soon as I just removed the original thing that said that they're from the same table and then loosened my constraint on things have to be over a table, because uh, it actually worked if I just loosened the constraint that, like, if I made it so column is generic over T instead of, a t- instead of T, which must be a table. Mm-hmm. Um, but then my older test where I was selecting multiple columns from a single table stopped compiling because now it doesn't know what the table that those columns are abstracting over are because it's a tuple. So is it a tuple of users and users or is it users? And it took me a while to figure out that's where it was saying that this is ambiguous. Um, and when I finally figured out, I'm like, oh, and then that makes sense. It it's, originates from a tuple of two tables, which happen to be the same. And then everything else still holds. If I can write, if I can write in the, in, in code in the type system proof that when they originate from two tables, that they can only be selected from the, the thing that allows you to select from both tables, that, then that all holds true for when I'm dealing with a single table as well. And so trying to select a column from posts from the user's table still doesn't compile. A tuple between a, user, a column from users and a column from posts still doesn't compile. And it was really cool. Yeah. I'm looking at, I've been kind of following along with your commits. Are you, can we, can we tell the people the very secret location of this project? We'll put put it in the show notes. It's early days. As of right now, I realize that even my workaround for the overlapping impulse thing actually doesn't work because it relies on the fact that my tests are in the same crate. Are you familiar with orphan instances in Haskell? No, I am not. So an orphan instance is when you implement a uh, instance of a type class from another module for a type that lives in another module. So you do not own the type that you're implementing it for or the type class that you're, that you're implementing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's called an orphan instance. And it is explicitly disallowed by the compiler. And there is no way to allow it in uh, Rust. Why? It basically uh, breaks soundness of... I don't understand the uh, full implications of it, but from my layman's understanding of it, it is tightly tied to... The param, uh, I think it's the <laughs> parametricity, parametricity, something like that. Um, <laughs> it has to do with when something is generic over a certain type, you can uh, reason that can only do things based on that specific constraint. And so specialization breaks that because a more specific implementation might do other things because it can know more things. And the drop checker in Rust, the thing that makes sure that like when a variable goes out of scope, it drops and everything belonging to it drops. And all of the stuff that we do to push garbage collection into compile time checks relies on that. And this somehow relates to that. I don't remember the exact reason, but I remember reading that there is a specific reason and uh, it's important. Anyway, and so I can't actually, and, and that basically means that I can't ever implement for a trait that I don't own. I can't say I implement that trait for type T where, and it doesn't matter what constraints I put on type T because that's a, because that's a wild card deal. Mm-hmm. And somebody else then, in a further transitive dependency, could then implement my trait for a type that they own. And so the compiler, when compiling my crate, can't actually tell all of the places that a trait might be used. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so, but yeah, but we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. Um, it's at sgrif slash yaqb, which I assume yet another query builder. Is that what we're going with here? Okay. That is not the name it's going to ship with. That is the name I typed in because I needed something right. to give to GitHub. But there's, I'm looking through it now, and it's interesting because there's like 
good commit messages, even though the audience is currently yourself. So that's nice to see. So if you other developers includes you next week, right? <laughs> but it's nice because if you are kind of following along with what's going on with Rust, but some of the stuff is like hard, like you know, when we're talking about something being generic over T and blah, 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 you can be kind of hard to follow. But if you step through these commits here, you can kind of watch the evolution of it. And right now there's only, I don't know, 15 commits or something like that. Let's see. No, it's, it's 27 commits. Whatever. Yeah. You can follow. You could go through every single one of those right now if you wanted. But, By the time you hear this next week, there might be 50. But, you know, who knows? <laughs> I just do, I do want to throw out a couple of qualifiers on this too. A, for all of the stuff I'm talking about where, like, really really hard logic this is all internal in the library that the users are never going to have to worry about and the actual usage for what i do have so far seriously looks a lot like rails and i think that's really cool like it's just user.select name and age and but we have all kinds of guarantees you can't actually get something out of that that isn't of the correct type right. if the column is nullable you have to get an option out of it you can't select columns that don't exist on that table that are from another table that aren't part of your query. And you can do all the all the stuff. Uh, and it's actually slightly fewer characters than Rails because you don't have to quote the string. Because <laughs> um, you're not past the string. And then the other thing is, too, with all the stuff that we're talking about, for people who are maybe me talking about all this really weird, deep, generic stuff in, in Rust, I don't want anyone to get scared off from that because what I'm doing is not kind of normal usage. Um, it's because I'm writing absurdly generic code, and it's not even because I'm trying to do something. It's because I'm trying to very specifically disallow a lot of stuff. And so all of this reasoning I'm having to do with the types isn't so much about what I'm trying to say I can do. Well, it is about what I'm – but the reason I'm having to do all this legwork is because I've gone through the trouble of explicitly disallowing all kinds of incorrect queries, right. which then means I, the developer – or the, the framework developer now, have to prove to the compiler and the type system that what I am writing in my tests – is actually a valid query and but now i'm forced to provide proof that i wouldn't have otherwise had to provide but that's where the interest lies and we talked about that last week um yeah. that's where the interest really lies is that you know you could build yet another query builder or you could build yet another query builder that is backed by types right um, and the important thing for me being that you don't lose composability the ability to drop back to raw sql when you need to uh and that you don't have to write a lot of boilerplate like i, I don't want this to be harder to use than no. um whatever active record would look like in in rust i still need a rust project you gotta figure something out you should just come help me on uh on the square builder <laughs> yeah that, <laughs> that probably wouldn't go very well uh i can write an app that uses your query builder when you're ready and i'll write a blog that uses your query builder uh we can go from there <laughs> once i uh once i get uh something figured out so that i don't have to i'm probably going to ultimately end up with schema.toml <laughs> and then i'll be able <laughs> more markup languages Yehuda says use, just use Toml. Toml's the go-to. That's the Rust everything. thing. That's what Rust uses instead of YAML. Right. So Toml is Tom's markup language, right? Right. But people actually use it all the time and don't even realize it. Like if you, ha if you have a .ini file, that is Toml. Or right. it's a subset of Toml, most likely. Well, yeah, Toml backed into that from the Windows INI file days. Right. Anyway, it's what we, it's we what just we use. went full circle back to Windows. <laughs> uh, but yeah then i can have a build script and you call one function that generates schema.rs at compile time um and that'll help me work around a lot of it and then i think at that point i'm gonna try and start moving parts of crates.io onto this not actually submitting it to them like hey you should switch to this thing um but just as sort of a i have a real world user with real world needs even though i don't and i'll just be actually porting it myself but like using that to kind of drive a lot of uh where I go next. I, I'm really excited to um, 
get to where? Because I was gonna be like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna implement ARL, I'm not gonna implement ARL, and now that I've got like the the way select took me, I'm totally gonna do ARL. <laughs> I can write so much that is provably correct. I know exactly what operators can or can't exist for every type. I know exactly what arguments they can take, and I can have like if I, I actually just need to do this one without even getting to where, but like I could do select column A plus column B, and literally the code for that is dot select column A space plus column b because the add trait in rust lets you specify the output type right and it doesn't have to be either like either side of the of the and so yeah so if you know if you know a and b are integers or whatever then you know when you select a plus b that's an integer is that what you're getting at no uh well yes but it's more like i'll be able to write the code that says that um that implants add for example where the left side is a column of a set of types that can be added mm-hmm. and the right side is a column that can be added with type a uh and then the output of that will be an ast like some sort of generic ast type but then that that also encodes what um because i'll know what the result of added well and it'll be generic over the sequel type of those and that'll be that will presumably be a thing that that, that is unchanged because uh, i don't think there is any form of addition that you can do in sequel that would return a different type right that makes sense Depending on how strict it is. I mean, I guess integer plus float it probably does float. Postgres probably makes you cast. Who knows? Anyway, but that's, uh, yeah, but I can encode all of this and it's going to be really cool. Uh, and I'm going to try and implement it in such a way that's still open ended. This is why I, uh, like, I feel like I am a good person to be working on something like this is because I am thinking about all of the issues, like the post gist adapter, right? Because I've mm-hmm. had to deal with that and had to, you know, figure out how to then bring all that kind of stuff in later. Uh, and a lot of this stuff is way harder to deal with after the fact. The one contention I am making is right now I'm tightly coupling to Postgres. It's fine. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> Microsoft can come calling three years from now and say that they want. <laughs> it's going to be so much harder if I do it then. then. But yeah. Um, but it'll be cool, too, because if I do this right, I'll be able to make it so that I know what this operator works on MySQL between these two types, but doesn't work on PostgreSQL between those two types. Because the type integer will be different on MySQL than on Postgres, and I'll just have a configuration flat. Like, I'll probably have it be you can ask for the specific ones if for some reason you're connecting to multiple databases in the same app. Mm-hmm. Or you can just set a compiler flag that's like, I'm using Postgres. And then the generic not database constrained names will ultimately just be an alias for the Postgres ones. Right. Um, is what I'm thinking, and I don't know if that'll work because I haven't tried it yet. But yeah, it's going to be really cool. I'm really excited about it. Provably correct queries. Provably correct. <laughs> All right. Should we wrap up? Yeah, let's wrap up. Okay. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 32. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this show or any other show, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Where we will talk about rust. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Probably.